0: Live, from Liverpool, The Dark Paranormal, Season 2. Hello, and welcome to The Dark Paranormal. I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who reached out following the Enfield Poltergeist episode over the last couple of weeks... Quite rightly, a lot of people have strong opinions on that particular case. I've received emails from Texas to Sydney, some of which asking why I'd waste my time on such a clear fraudulent case, whilst others state that it's the only paranormal case that they actually believe. So with that said, I think the beginning of this episode would be a good time to remind everyone just why I do The Dark Paranormal. And that reason is to take you to places in your mind that you don't get to visit in the everyday. Take you to places where you can suspend your disbelief about the paranormal. And in all honesty, to try and give you a genuine, old-fashioned scare. At the same time, I wanted to come from a place of truth. And when I say truth, I mean stories which have been presented as real, And still to this day, try to hold on to that claim. What I don't want is for you to think that I'm trying to convince you, one way or the other, about the validity of a story or a case. What I am trying to do is terrify you, and at the same time, give you enough information so you can go away and make a balanced judgement on what you think is real or not. It really is that simple. How I would approach these episodes is to listen to each story with your belief suspended. Revisit that place where, as a child, you first got interested in the paranormal. Quiet down that adult cynical brain that we all develop and just ask yourself, what if? As you've seen, by the wrap-up of each story, I will give you some information which fully allows the sceptic to come waltzing back into the room and hopefully gives you all you need to make an informed decision. With all that said, I'll give you a little update on where we are as a podcast. We're now up to episode 7 of season 2. And as I've mentioned earlier, each season will run for 10 episodes. Next season, season 3, we will return to some terrifying true listener stories. So, as always, if you have a terrifying listener story, that you think warrants the Dark Paranormal treatment, send it over to thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com Once again, I'd like to reiterate that this is an independent show, and we survive literally on the donations of our Patreons. By signing up to Patreon, you will of course get early access to each episode well before the general public. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to patreon.com Forward slash the dark paranormal. Now, what story or case are we going to look at in episode 7? Well, in a first for the show, this is a listener recommended story. We received an email way back when we started season 2 of the dark paranormal for us to look at a particular case in Connecticut. The hardcore paranormal enthusiasts among you may just by the simple mention of the word Connecticut, have an idea of where this episode's about to go. And for those of you who don't, we're about to meet the Snedeker family as we look at a haunting in Connecticut. So, what do you think? Said Al to his wife, Carmen, as they leant against their car, taking in the huge house in front of them. "'Jesus, Al, it's large. "'Are you sure we can afford the rent?' "'I've done the math, and we can definitely afford it. "'This isn't New York. "'You get more bang for your buck out here,' said Al, crossing his arms. "'Plus, the landlord said I can split the basement into two bedrooms for the boys. "'I think it's perfect.' "'Carmen shrugged in agreement. "'Well, you'll be doing all the work, so it's your call, I guess.' In truth, this house was almost perfect. The commutes from New York to Connecticut for their son, Philip's Hodgkin's lymphoma treatment, were difficult enough. They'd gone from monthly, to weekly, to almost daily. And even if just to not completely obliterate their finances, something had to give. And so, Al and Carmen Snedeker took the decision to uproot their entire family, three sons Philip, Bradley and Matt, and their niece Tammy, and make the move closer to the medical facility in Southington, Connecticut. Two weeks later, Al Snedeker began his work renovating the basement. As he worked during the day, he needed to do the majority of this work at night. This night night one he just wanted to scope out the area have a general cleanup remove any clutter he wanted to look at the eventual empty space and visualize his next steps in the conversion as he walked down into the basement and pulled the chain to turn on the light it became clear that no one had set foot in let alone used this basement in a long long time No wonder, he thought, the landlord was okay with me renovating the space. A thick layer of dust covered everything. Old wooden chairs and stacked cardboard boxes placed sparsely around this immediate area. Walking through, Al realised the room had a big dog-leg shape to the right, revealing an even bigger area that he had to work with. He stood in between the two areas, rubbing his chin and thinking where he could put the dividing wall, when something caught his eye in the newly discovered room. A wheel poking out from under a dust sheet. He walked over and removed the cover. It was what looked like an old hospital gurney. He gave it a little push. It moved an inch before squeaking to a halt. The wheels long since rusted up. This brought his attention to another... ...larger looking dust sheet... ...covering something rectangular. Hoping he was about to uncover a pool table... ...he grabbed an edge and pulled. It took him a few minutes to figure out what he was looking at. But when he realised... His spine went cold. This was an embalming table, the holes in the steel carefully positioned to allow blood to flow out into the grids underneath. Looking up, he could tell by the shape of the neck sheet that there was another one just behind it. ''What is this place?'' Al muttered to himself. Opening a box which was on the floor nearby, his initial fears... ...were confirmed. Surgery instruments... ...scalpels... ...tongs... ...all slightly tarnished. He quickly opened another box. Cardboard tags... ...each with a name. Arnold, Mary... ...Rothschild, Megan. What are these? He thought. And then it hit him. Toe tags... Further boxes revealed more macabre objects. Coffin handles, brass plaques which sit on coffin lids, most with spelling mistakes, probably discarded to be reused. A chill filled the air as Al stood surrounded by his menagerie of death. This big old house, it was now clear, must have been a mortuary in its past life. No way would you catch me living there, smiled Donald, Alan's brother. Alan had called him that night and asked him to come over later that week to help empty out the basement. Shut up, man, said Al. Death is a business just as much as anything else. That's the way I'm looking at it. We're simply renovating someone's old workspace. Yep, a workspace where they cut people up every day said Don, with a smile. Have you told Carmen about this? Yeah, of course, began Al. No reason to keep it from her. We found out it was called Hallahan's Funeral Home. Mind you, we obviously won't be telling the boys. Well, that makes sense, replied Don. Young Philip's had enough on his plate recently. Al just nodded. His upbringing didn't really allow for feelings that arrive with a sick child. This, the physical moving and fixing of things, this he could do. The emotional side of things, he would leave to his wife, Carmen. The two men spent all evening clearing out the detritus from the basement. The landlord had eventually agreed to foot the bill for some removal guys to come and take the items from the sidewalk. On the proviso, Al had the items ready to go. Finally, around 1am, the two men took a walk around the empty basement to behold their work. So, the wall's going to go about here, said Al, gesturing with his hands as he stood in the middle of the two areas. And those blood grids, said Don, pointing to the floor. Don't call them that, man, said Al, smiling. I can go over those. The floor needs doing anyway. The boys will be none the wiser. Three weeks later, the Snedeker family arrived en masse to move into their new abode. Philip and Bradley were to sleep in the basement, with the rest of the family moving into the smaller rooms upstairs. I don't like my room. I want to leave. Not the first words you want to hear after such a big move. But this is what young Philip said to his mother, running up from the basement after barely setting foot in there. What? Come on, don't be silly, son, said Carmen, leading him back to the basement. Your dad put a lot of effort into getting this ready for you. It's warm, it's nice, said Carmen, placing her hands on her hips. Let's not put the dampers on this house on day one, eh? she said, ruffling his hair. Begrudgingly, Philip continued to unpack his belongings. That evening, Philip lay awake. A small clock next to his bed told him it was just past 1am. The darkness of the basement seemed to grow thicker. His eyes darted around the room to see if he could still make out familiar shapes. But then, Something moved. He didn't see it, but he heard it. It sounded like an animal. Small, incoherent shuffling, interspersed with silence. And then, out of nowhere, a roar of fluttering, as if a thousand birds had all taken off at the same time. Philip shot his head under the covers and squeezed his eyes shut silence again ever so slowly he opened his eyes and slowly moved the bedsheet down from his face blackness but something was there at the foot of his bed it started out as an outline a man, he was sure of it white hair Philip rubbed his eyes The man was gone. He lay terrified in bed for the rest of the night, only dropping off as he gained comfort from his parents' voices talking upstairs. The next morning, Carmen cooked breakfast as the rest of the family individually made their way to the table. Philip was the last one to arrive. You look like shit, said Tammy. Tammy, mind your language, shouted Carmen but she was right. "'Are you okay, honey? "'Don't forget we have your appointment today.' "'Mom,' started Philip. "'Do you think maybe I could stay over in the hospital tonight? "'Like, like a sleepover?' Carmen's face became concerned. "'Well, why would you want to do that, son?' "'No reason,' said Philip, going back to his breakfast. "'Philip?' was withdrawn on the drive over to the medical centre. ''You're starting to worry me, honey,'' said Carmen as they hit a red light. ''You can talk to me, you know.'' Philip fiddled with a zipper on the coat, and then looked his mother dead in the eye. ''Okay. About one o'clock last night there was a man in my room. He had white hair. He was staring at me from the foot of the bed.'' Carmen was stunned into silence not knowing what to say but Philip continued he came after I heard all the birds fluttering after a few seconds staring intently at each other Philip looked back to his zipper I heard you and dad talking though so I felt okay after a while a car beeped from behind the lights had changed to green Carmen waved and put the car in motion once more. Her head was spinning. Just what had Philip told her? Not only that, and not that she would tell Philip this, but her and Al were in bed for ten o'clock last night, and they certainly weren't up talking at one a.m. Let's have a quick break to talk to you about policy genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where policy genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how policy genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about policy genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.
0: "'asked Al as Carmen threw her keys in the hallway bowl. "'Can we have a talk in the basement?' "'Sure,' said Al, wiping his hands and following his wife down into the boy's bedroom. "'Carmen walked around the room slowly, "'checking corners, vents, looking behind the beds. "'Have you lost something?' joked Al. "'Carmen sat on the end of the bed, stroking the sheet.' Philip said someone was stood at the foot of his bed last night. Al pulled a face. It was probably Brad going to the bathroom. No, no, this was something more, Al. He was terrified this morning. He barely slept. And then he said he heard us talking at one o'clock in the morning upstairs. This made Al pull a different face. One which desperately wanted to appear nonchalant, like a facial shrug. But one you only pull to hide your true thoughts. Al was now worried. Listen, he began. This is new to us all. It's hardly like this room fills with sunlight. It's a big change for him. I mean... He chose his next words carefully. Could, could it also be his meds? Carmen had had that thought already. Well, it did cross my mind. Well, there you go then. So, if he says something similar again, we'll just ask the doctors. Carmen nodded in agreement, although a knot in her stomach told her it wasn't this simple. That evening, Philip was beat. A night of zero sleep followed by a day of treatment, left him craving his bed. He was still going over the previous night's events in his head, as he peeled back the bedsheets and climbed into bed. Brad was out like a light in his own bed, and Philip looked over with slight jealousy at how easy he could just drop off. His mind started to race with the day's events. Slowly but surely, slipping into the images which signify a dream state is on its way. Scratch, scratch. It was the sound he'd heard last night, as if some bird-like claw was scratching on a ceramic tile. With his eyes scrunched closed, he awaited the fluttering sound. It didn't come. He breathed more easily and slowly opened his eyes just darkness wanting to reassure himself he leant over to his left to look under the bed and nothing he moved over to look a man stood against the wall staring at him he couldn't scream he couldn't breathe a tall thin man wearing a pinstripe suit gaunt cheeks black hair with a streak of white running through it Slowly, he opened his mouth and the fluttering sound began, louder and louder, so many birds aggressively beating their wings. Philip retreated under his sheets, and finally, finding his breath, he screamed. The sheets were pulled away from his face. Son, what's wrong? It was Al. The lights now on, a hyperventilating Philip, stared, eyes wide the now empty space on the wall. So, what was that? whispered Carmen to Al, trying not to wake the sleeping Philip on the couch. He's clearly having a reaction to something, said Al. Like night terrors or something. Carmen stroked Philip's hair. Maybe I should ask the hospital if he could stay over, see if it happens there, If they see it in action, they'll be better placed to do something. It's a good idea, replied Al. I'll make some cocoa, said Al, heading into the kitchen. Al needed to feel in control. He didn't cope very well if he could feel that control slipping from his grasp. He spooned the cocoa into two mugs, opened the cupboard to get the sugar. When he looked back, The two mugs were ten feet further along the counter, away from him. A movement in his periphery made him jump. "'Jesus, Matt,' said Al, clutching his chest. "'You almost gave me a heart attack.' "'Matt?' Matt appeared to have his eyes closed, like he was sleepwalking, something he'd never done before. "'Matt?' Matt came too. "'What?' What are you doing? asked Al. I'm just getting some water. Calm down, Dad. Jeez. Al watched Mac go and get himself a glass. Did you move those mugs? What? No? Al shook it off. He went to retrieve the mugs and finish the cocoa. Strangest thing just happened, said Al, as he handed Carmen a hot mug of cocoa. These mugs moved across the counter. Then Matt appeared out of nowhere, but he said it wasn't him. What? Did you see them move yourself? No, I turned round, and they're all the way over there, and Matt stood in the doorway. Probably Matt playing a prank, said Carmen. Yeah, though he seemed kind of out of it, to be honest, replied Al. The next morning at breakfast, Carmen cleared her throat. throat) Philip, would you like to stay over at a hospital tonight? Philip looked at his mum, then over to his dad. Yeah, why? Well, you've not slept well the last few nights, so maybe you'll get a good night's sleep, said Carmen tactfully, avoiding anything to do with the strange sensation she was getting herself in the house. There was a bang from upstairs. Matt had still not come down for breakfast. Matt, shouted Al. Get your ass down here. I'm here, said Matt, stood just behind the shouting gal. Jesus, you need to stop creeping around. You're going to be the death of me, said Al. I will, said Matt with a straight face. Funny, said Al, taking his seat at the table. That afternoon, Carmen was sat in Dr. Andrews' office. Mrs. Snedeker, my colleague informs me that you'd like us to observe Philip for a few nights. Can I ask why? Well, he's not been sleeping that well. My husband thinks it's night terrors. But, well, I don't know. He's been seeing things, Doctor. What type of things? Asked Dr. Andrews. Well, a man... A man in his room. And, uh, birds. Birds? Yeah, he said he heard them fluttering in his room. But there's no evidence of this, though. No feathers, nowhere they could come in from. I see, said Dr. Andrews. So we were thinking, my husband and I, if maybe the medications he's on could cause, well, hallucinations, you know, Explain these things that he's seeing. The doctor peeled through the clipboard on his desk, moving his glasses from his head to his nose. Let's see. Nope, none of these meds. Drowsy? Yes. Possible rashes? Maybe. Hallucinations? No, not as far as I'm aware. Again, Carmen slowly nodded but he can still stay here for a few nights. I just thought if it happens whilst he's here, we could start ruling things out, you know. Ruling things out, asked Dr. Andrews. Carmen paused. It sounds silly, Doctor, but the house has a sort of vibe to it. Dr. Andrews re-looked at the papers on his desk. Ah, you're in the old funeral home, right? Yes, we are, sir said Carmen. Hmm, and have you told Philip he's sleeping in a funeral home? Kids have very active minds, you know. They're very suggestible, especially at Philip's age. No, no, we haven't said anything. We wouldn't like to scare him inadvertently. Well, began Dr. Andrews. In all honesty, with Philip's lymphoma the stage it is... We would generally start requiring him to have a few overnight stays, so that won't be an issue, Mrs. Snedeker. But I wouldn't worry too much about the house. Every house round here is probably older than that one. I've lived here all my life, and places like funeral homes will always have a ghost story or some such nonsense attached to it. Kids like to scare themselves. Hallahan Funeral Home. Oh, I know the place. We even pretended that place was haunted when we were kids. Urban myths of a man with a streak of white hair looking out the windows. Stuff like that. All of it nonsense. Carmen nodded with a smile. But her heart was banging around her chest. In one sentence, the doctor managed to verify Philip's story, but also prove that people would think he was lying, having probably heard this urban myth and beginning to act out. But Philip didn't go out. He hadn't met anyone by that first night. He saw and described this thin man. Still, at least he would be out of the house for now. Hopefully whatever creepy feelings she was starting to get from the house would dissipate without Philip's presence. She kind of felt guilty even thinking that about her sick son. Tammy was laying on his stomach Reading her magazine, Carmen had took Philip to the hospital and the others were out for the afternoon. Radio on and idly flicking through the pages, when suddenly... Tammy. A male voice from the doorway, one she didn't recognise. What? she said from her prone position. No reply. Hello, she said closing the magazine and walking to the radio, turning it off. She stood, one hand on the radio volume, the other holding her magazine, listening out. "'Has someone come back?' she shouted from her stationary position. God damn! she muttered and headed to the doorway. "'Hello?' Again, silence filled the house. She decided it must have been something she misheard on the radio, and turned back to her room, and screamed, Matt, you psycho, she shouted, throwing the magazine at the figure stood at her window. Matt's eyes were black, not dark, but black. What the hell are you doing? said a calming Tammy. How the hell did you get past me like that? she said, angrily putting her hands on her hips. Matt stayed silent, and just stared at her. What do you want, you freak? said Tammy. Still no response. She felt a chill go down her spine. Matt smiled. Tammy, he repeated, in the exact same voice she'd heard from the doorway. Matt stepped forward. And that brings us to the end of episode one of A Haunting in Connecticut. Next week we will conclude the story and I will state now as a bit of a trigger warning things get exceptionally violent. I'll put another trigger warning out at the start of next week's episode just to make sure no youngsters inadvertently listen to something which may well give them the wrong type of nightmare. The interesting thing for me thus far into the Snedeker story is when I think about what sort of impact it would have on a general human being with the knowledge they were living in a former mortuary. Some would argue, quite rightly, that that knowledge could in itself start to make you misidentify certain things as paranormal that simply aren't. Another argument would go that knowledge of living in that sort of environment could very well heighten any sort of latent psychic ability someone has, and therefore they start seeing things more frequently that actually are paranormal. By the way, the Snedeker story is about to escalate to the nth degree. And in next week's show, we're going to look not only at the absolutely harrowing alleged real-life events that took place in the conclusion of this story, but also at some of the controversial aspects that make this case hotly disputed. Once again, if you have a comment on the show so far, or you have a story you'd like to submit for Season 3, email it over to thedarkparanormalahotmail.com. And once again, if you'd like to support the show and allow it to keep going, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. Thank you for your time, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week for the conclusion of A Haunting in Connecticut.